Hebrews chapter number 1. And we'd like to begin reading with verse 1 of this chapter. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But until the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thy love righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thy Lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thy remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thy fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years fail not, or shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now let us pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, as we bow in your presence, I thank you for the Word of God, and I thank you, Lord, for another privilege that we have to stand and preach your Word. And Lord, I realize without the power of God that I am helpless to do anything. And Lord, I desire your power, desire wisdom. And I pray you'd use me for your glory. You know every heart, you know every need. And I pray, O oh God, that you administer each need according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus because it's in his name I do pray. Amen. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject of better things. The book of Hebrews is a book of better things. The key word in Hebrews is better. It occurs 13 times in 13 chapters. I thought that was unusual. The Old Testament counterpart is the book of Leviticus. The key verse is Hebrews 11 and verse uh, 40 that says, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The key verse is there, Hebrews 11, 40, the key person is Jesus. And in Him, everything is better. Now we notice in chapter 1, the chapter that we read to you today, and verse 4, that He's better than angels. Jesus is better than everything. He's better than angels. Verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained 
a more excellent name than they. Now, why is he better? Well, he's better because he has a better name. Jesus means Savior. This could not be said about any angel. No angel can save you. Only Jesus can save you. We have other angels named in the Bible. Lucifer, who became the devil, is an angel. Michael is the archangel. And by the way, I believe it will be Michael at the rapture, not Gabriel, as is commonly believed. Then you have Gabriel, also named in the Bible. But the Bible said that Jesus has a more excellent name than any of the angels, including these highest of the angels. Now, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 21, the Bible said, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. The Bible ascribes the name of Jesus as a name that is greater than any other name. You know, it's sad that people use the name of Jesus in, in vain, and you know, we should never utter his name except in praise and honor and glory to God. We should be careful how we use the name of Jesus. You know, even, even in our prayers, I think sometimes we may carelessly use God's name. We need to be careful about that. We need to be conscious of that. We're not just using his name to fill in space as, as we would use, uh, you know, we're pausing and letting our mind catch up with our mouth and, and uh, we, we say, oh, I say it a lot, I guess, unconsciously. But uh, we should never use the name of the Lord like that. Never use his name in dishonor because his name is above every name. Now the Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verse number 9, he says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible said he's given a name that is above every name. At the very mention of his name, the Bible said every knee should bow at the very mention the great name of Jesus Christ. And there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess many to their own judgment and condemnation. But every sinner will confess him. Oh, Madeline O'Hara will one day have to bow her knee. I pray to God that she gets saved. You realize her son got saved. And I pray that she would get saved before she goes to hell. But if she don't get saved, and there's no indication she has been, but if she doesn't get saved, she who has laughed at the name of God and ridiculed the name of Jesus will one day bow her knee and confess to that holy name of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is better than angels because he has a better name. Not only does he have a, a better name, 
Uh, but uh, we find also that he's worshipped in verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. We should never worship an angel. Angels are never to be worshipped. Saints are never to be worshipped. That's idolatry. To worship and pray to Mary is idolatry. To pray to St. Peter or St. Paul or any other saint is idolatry. We should never worship any man dead or alive. We should never worship angels. We should only worship God. And he tells us in this chapter that Jesus Christ is better than the angels because Jesus is to be worshipped. This is one reason we know he was God, because he did not refuse worship. He was God, and he is very God. So he's better than the angels. Lucifer, one of the reasons that he sinned and fell from his lofty position, he wanted to be worshipped. God said, no, we worship no angel. Only God is worthy of our worship and our adoration. So, he said he's better than the angels because the angels themselves have to worship before his name. Then not only is he better than angels because of his name and because of worship that is given to him, but also in verse 8, because he is God. Verse 8, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Scepter of righteousness is scepter of thy kingdom. You ought to underline or circle that verse. And if a Jehovah Witness knocks on your door, this is a good verse to use. They say Jesus Christ is not God. That's, what not, that's not what this verse says, is it? He says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, the Father speaking to the Son, Jesus, says, you're God. And I want to say to you that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, was God, and forevermore will be God. And therefore, he's better than angels because no angel's God. Again, that's one of the reasons that Lucifer fell is because he wanted to be God. I'm not satisfied to be a, an angel. I want to be God. But there's only one God, only one God. There can't be several gods. There's only one. And Lucifer fell from his position. So Jesus is better than angels because he's God and they're not. They're not only that. But verse 10 tells us that he's a creator. And thy Lord in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. He's talking about Jesus Christ. And there's other verses. The Bible says in John 1 that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Bible also says he created all things by Christ Jesus, and he is the creator in Genesis there, when God said, let us make man in our image. 
He's talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit having a part in their creation. The entire Godhead was involved in the creation of man. That's why we are a triune being, because a triune God created us and formed the body from the dust of the ground and breathed into man's nostrils a breath of life and man became a living soul. So Jesus Christ is better than angels because angels can't create. Only God can do that. And Jesus Christ is a creator. He is the creator. He proved that when he was upon this earth. Uh, how else can you explain taking five loaves and two fishes and feeding 5,000 men? How do you explain that except by creation? Of course, the modernists, they don't need God. They have a very small God, you know. They can, they can put their God in a test tube and bottle him up. Their God's not very big. I, that outfit, I wonder who they think is going to get them out of the graveyard if they believe in the resurrection at all. What kind of God could get that, that can't perform miracles? What kind of God are they trusting when they die and their old carcass rots and goes back to the dust? Who's going to put it all back together? I believe in a God that's big enough and able enough to do it. Our God is all-powerful. But I heard an explanation about that story, the feeding of the 5,000. And this was the explanation. Said everybody brought sack lunches. But it's all kind of ashamed, you know, to open their sack lunch and start eating. So this little boy, he wasn't ashamed of nothing. He sat down and started eating his lunch. And when he sat down and started eating his lunch, then everybody else opened up their lunch and they started eating. How'd you like to have a God like that? Sack lunch God. Very small God, isn't it? I, listen, I don't know what a preacher like that. I don't know what a people like that. I don't know why they even bother. What if they just go on to hell and forget the whole thing? Eat, drink, and be merry, and die, and go to hell. That's where they're going anyway. It's like this, this fellow in Raleigh, pastoring this Baptist church. Won't he get out and get him an honest job? Quit claiming to be a preacher. A man that's willing to perform a ceremony and have two men live together, one of the men, a member of his church, and willing to join them together in a ceremony and call himself a Baptist preacher. Well, anyway, we find that he's the creator. We have a great God. And then verse 13 says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's better than an angel because one day he's going to reign. And God says as a trinity is communing together with one another in the trinity of the Godhead, we find that he said, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is going to take over this world one day. He's coming back in his revelation seven years after he comes for the church. 
He's coming back with his bride that's glorified and made pure and white. And all the judgment seat, all that's over. And he's coming back to take over the controls of this world and put his enemies to flight and reign over this world, this earth for a thousand years. Well, no angel can do that. But Jesus can. The devil's not going to do it. You know, these Satan worshipers, they believe that the devil's going to win. They don't believe the Bible. And they believe the devil's going to come out on the winning side. But I done read the last chapter of the Bible. I know who wins. I know where the devil goes. I know where he ends up. And I know who's left when he's in the lake of fire. And so Jesus Christ is better than angels. Now turn over to chapter 6. And he talks about some other things here that are better. Chapter 6 of Hebrews and verse 9. He talks about better things. Hebrews 6, 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now he talks about these better things that accompany salvation. You know, I believe that the life of a Christian is better than the life of the lost. You know, the devil's lied to people. Why, if you get saved, you're going to miss out on all the fun. What a lie that is. I believe you can have a better time in this world knowing Christ, not even counting heaven when it's over. I believe you're better off serving God. We just read... Survey there. If you live right, you live longer. I mean, you not only live longer physically, generally speaking, unless God has other plans to glorify Him, but generally you live longer. If, you'll, if a person will obey the laws of God and the Word of God, they will live longer. They will have a more fruitful life than if you don't live for God, generally speaking. He said things that accompany salvation. Now, we're not saved by works, but I believe when you get saved, you're going to have some works that will accompany salvation. Ephesians 2, verse 10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God wants you and I to live right. And the new birth makes it possible. Christ inside of a person makes a new life possible better things things that accompany salvation okay chapter 7 and verse 19 for the law made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God now here he talks about a better hope Ephesians 2 12 said that the Gentiles had no hope, they having no hope and without God in the world. A man that's lost has no hope. You talk to people, say if you died today, do you know you go to heaven? Well, I hope so. The problem is that God said a man lost has no hope. He said, I hope I, I'm going to heaven. He ain't going to heaven. There's not, there's not a chance in 10 billion he's going to heaven 
There's no chance, period. A man without Christ has no hope. But the Bible said here, he talks about a better hope. The law made nothing perfect. That's a good verse to remember also. People say Old Testament saints were saved by the law. It's not what the Bible says. The law made nothing perfect. Ain't nobody ever been saved by the law. Nobody ever going to be saved by the law because the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did. The law could not make me perfect, but Jesus can. That's the difference because he's better, a better hope. Now, the law could not make us perfect because it was weak through the flesh. Nothing wrong with the law. Problem was with man. That's the problem. Man's ability to keep it. God said, if you believe, keep the law, I'll bless you. If you break the law, I'll curse you. Read it in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy. You do these things, you obey my law, these blessings will come upon you. You disobey my law, these curses come upon you. And Paul brings it over in the book of Galatians. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And Romans 3 teaches, By the works of the law there shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was given that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And after, after 1,500 years of the law, hundreds and thousands of people that had walked the face of this earth, thousands of Jewish people, you couldn't find one single human being that had met his demands. Not one. And then Jesus came and he satisfied the law and he obeyed it perfectly. But man could not curse this everyone, everyone that continued not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You go out, on, you go out in McDowell County and probably 75% of the people you talk to depend on the law to go to heaven. They'll tell you they're trying to do the best they can. First of all, nobody does that. Even if that would save you, nobody's doing it. How many lift their hand tonight and saying, I've always done the best I could? Anybody in here? Anybody couldn't do a little better? What about that? Not a one in here is trying to do the best they, could, they can. Aren't you thankful to God that it's by grace? Man, if it wasn't by grace, ain't none of us go. Not a single one of us. Because there's not a one of us has done the best we could. We admit it and say we could do better. Now you tell me how folks are going to heaven like that. But you've heard that, haven't you? Well, you know, preacher, I try and do the best I can. I hope I make it. <laughs> now, some are just, I believe some are honestly saved and they, they just don't understand the, the Bible. And I believe some are just lost. If, they're trust, if that's what they're depending on, they're lost. They're depending on that instead of Jesus, then they're just lost. And they need to get saved. 
But cursed is everyone that continue not in all things, everyone and all things. You keep the whole law 999% of the time, but you break that 1%, you're a goner. You're cursed, you headed to hell. The law was for what purpose? For the knowledge of sin. To convict us that we need help from somebody else. And that's what it's all about. It's a schoolmaster. Oh man, I like that. It was a schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus. That's what, and the law's good, and it does, does its job, and it's good, and it shows us our wicked sinfulness and our wretched sinfulness and shows us how sorry and no count we are and how, how, what, a, what an awful sinner we are and hopefully convicts a man that he can't save himself and that he's not good enough to go to heaven and never will be good enough to go to heaven and he falls at the feet of Jesus and begs for mercy and grace and gets saved. Is that what you've done? Man, ain't it wonderful to be saved and know that Jesus done it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it as white as snow. The better hope. He said there the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh to God. You see, man as a sinner is cut off from God. He can't approach God. But when he gets this hope in him, when he gets saved, when he gets his sin forgiven, he can approach God. Look over in, back in chapter 6 and verse 18. He said that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Singing about that. And which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God said there that we have a strong consolation. We've laid hold upon the hope set before us. He has in mind here the tabernacle. And... Uh, if you remember studying the tabernacle, uh, you had the courtyard, and in the courtyard you had the brazen altar, the place of sacrifice, and the laver. The altar is a picture of the uh, suffering of Christ, offering himself, the laver is our daily cleanse. Anyway, then you had a structure inside of this, uh, and there was made of 48 gold-covered boards. And it was divided in two compartments, had four different covers over it and divided into two compartments. The front part called the holy place. Inside of that was uh, the, the, the golden candlestick on the left. On the right was the table of showbread. And on the right before the veil was the golden altar of incense where the priests went and offered the incense and the prayers of the people. And then behind the veil was the holy of holies. Nobody went in there except once a year the high priest went in and in there was the, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of that was the 
two tables of stone written with a finger of God, the Ten Commandments that summarize the law. Also later they added a pot of manna, a golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. On top of that was a solid piece of gold called the mercy seat with the cherubims fashioned on each end. And between the cherubims is where the glory of God dwelt among Israel. And once a year, the high priest would go back there and offer an atonement for the people as uh, a sacrifice for their sins until Jesus would call. The whole point to Jesus. But the point I was trying to make, there were 48 boards, and on the back there were six boards. And this pictured the six cities of refuge. When the, when the, the Israelites went into the land to possess the land of Canaan, uh, we find that uh, uh, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, did not inherit uh, a portion of the land. They didn't have boundaries, but they had 48 cities scattered throughout the rest of the tribes. And out of those 48, they had six cities of refuge. Now, if I killed a man accidentally, we out cutting wood and I saw a tree down, it falls on the man and kills him. But God designated these six cities of refuge and I could go to one of those cities of refuge and they'd hear my case, kind of a court. Say, man, this, he's not guilty. Then I'm free from the avenger of blood. But now if I'm guilty, let's say I've murdered a man, I go in there, they have my trial, they say guilt is charged. They turn me over to the avenger of blood and he takes me out and kills me. And it worked well. God had a good plan there. It worked real good. Now what he has in mind here, he says, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil where the forerunner is first entered, even Jesus. Now here I am, I'm a lawbreaker, and the law's on my trail. The problem is, I'm guilty. I'm not innocent, I am guilty. But I'm a running from the law. The law's after me, the law's going to kill me but I'm running for refuge. And I run into this holy of holies, so to speak. And when I get there, I find Jesus Christ has already paid for my debt in full. And I can go free. That all typified, I wish I could go into it more, but that all typified Jesus, our great high priest. We have a better hope. Let me move on. Chapter 7, verse 22. By so much better, by, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now, the word testament here has the same meaning as covenant. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this better testament. Now chapter 8 and verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. 
by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now, what's the difference in the covenants? The Old Testament of the Old Covenant was conditional upon obedience. The New Testament is an unconditional covenant. It is internal rather than external. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, made demands upon the sinner and said, Thy shalt not, and thy shalt. But it did not enable man except for the fear of judgment. It did not do anything inside of him to make that possible. It was external. It was conditional upon the obedience. The law said, you obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. Now, what's the difference? The New Testament says, receive me, accept me, I'll change the inside. And when you get the inside change, your outside will follow. It's a better covenant. Don't you think so? Man, thank God for grace. I don't have to run, for the, run to a city of refuge tonight. We have grace. We have a better covenant, so much better than the old one. Now, the Old Testament ends with a curse. The New Testament ends with grace. Book of Malachi. Malachi 4 and verse 6. Malachi 4, verse 6. I want you to see this. Turn your Bible. 984. Malachi 4, 6. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Shows you what the law did. Now turn to Revelation 22, 21. Man, I like this. Revelation 22, 21, last verse in the New Testament. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Which you like better? You like the curse or you like the grace? Man, I like that grace, don't you? Because I'll tell you right now, if it's the law, then you forget. I'm, I'm a goner. I've had it. I'm cursed, and I've, I don't have any hope. I'm sure a hell is already there if it depends on the law to get you to heaven because I'm not going to go. Even if I could live perfect from now on, which I can't, but if I could, I've already done enough to put me there. So grace is so much better. Now, he says here, back in Hebrews uh, 7, uh, 22 there, and so much with Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now, I like this word, surety. He was made a surety. You know what a bondsman is? Hope you never need one. 
But if you're charged with a crime, they put you down in jail. The judge says you're under $50,000 bond. Now, if you have $50,000, well and good. But if you don't, you probably need a bondsman. And that bondsman's going to stand good for a certain amount of that. I don't know exactly how all it works. But, but anyway, he's, he's, he's liable. Basically, a bondsman is liable for the debt or the default of another. If you co-sign, which God forbids, if you co-sign for someone else, probably all of us have done it, then if that person don't pay, you've got to pay it. You're liable. Now, there's a great truth. The Bible said Jesus is surety. He was made surety. He's our bondsman. He stood good for it. That's, the, that's what he's talking about. For the debt and default of another. He stood good for our debt. We all owe the debt. Now, the bondsman stands good for that fellow. He's got to appear in court such this time. If he appears, well and good. You pay the bondsman so much to stand good for you. He makes his money like that. Now, you run off, he's liable. So if you run off, he's probably coming after you. He has to stand good for it. And so Jesus is the surety of the better testament. You see, nothing's really changed. God's law is the same. The difference is Jesus stood good for it. The demands that the law demanded upon us, Jesus said, I'll pay it. I stand good. I'm the surety for it. I stand good for all the... And thank God he can stand good for all the sins of the world. And he has stood good for it. And every sinner that walks the face of this earth can be forgiven completely and have their debt paid in full because Jesus is the surety. He stands good for it. Well, I'm not going to get through tonight, but I think I'll get one more, and then we'll let's see how many of these I've got. I've got ten. And we, we have four. <laughs> Let me get one more, and we'll, we'll divide it in the center and preach the rest of it some other time. Better promises. Trying to preach a whole book, no wonder. Chapter 8, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 6 says, we all read the, read the verse, but there's something else I want you to see here. Verse 6, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. And he mediated it. But the last part of it, which was established upon better promises. Now, I like that. Jesus, everything, everything in him is better. And if you had to live on the law, you say, man, I'd like to have been there and seen the Red Sea part. That would have been great. I don't mind seeing that myself. I like seeing all them miracles. But I tell you, I'd a whole lot rather live now and then because we got a whole lot better promise than they've got now. God's made some promises to Israel. 
God said to Abraham, look at the stars of the heaven. And he looks up and he sees the Milky Way and the thousands and ten thousands of stars. He said, how many is up there, Abraham? I'm reading between the lines here. I don't know. He said, your seed's going to be like that. You won't even be able to number them, both physical and spiritual, but I think he's talking about physical there as well as spiritual, no doubt, but the physical is what I'm talking about now. He said, look at the sand of the sea. He said, that's what your seed's going to be like. Man, that's a bunch, isn't it? Innumerable. Look at the dust of the earth. He gives him that threefold promise, and then he draws the boundaries of the land. He talks about, he talks about the boundaries and, and where the land of Palestine. He said, you're going to inherit it one day. They've never inherited it. Is God, can you trust God? Can you believe God will do what he said? Yes, and he's going to do that in the millennium. Not only the millennium, but on the new earth forever. God said to a thousand generations, that's a while, isn't it? And he gives all these promises. Some are conditional, some are unconditional. And he said, it's yours. They are an earthly people with earthly promises. Some of the promises are temporal. Some of them are conditional. And there's going to be people in the millennium in physical bodies marrying and having children, having farms, so forth, and repopulating the earth for the millennium. And they'll be doing that forever on the new earth. God's made some promises to Israel that he's going to keep. But you know something? Of course, we'll have a glorified body. We won't marry a give-in marriage. We'll be the kings and the priests, the Bible says. But the promises of the new covenant are heavenly, spiritual, and eternal. Let me give you a verse in closing, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Notice. The words he uses, exceeding great and precious promises. The promises that we have exceed all other promises God's ever made to anybody. Better promises in Jesus Christ. Because we've been, we have partaken of the divine nature. And Jesus made everything better. Be a child of God tonight. To be a redeemed sinner born into the family of God, born by the power of God's Spirit and His Word, is to have a position is next to God Himself. There is none or will be none higher. You ever think about that? The Bible said we're ours and join ours with Christ. 
We'll inherit everything that God owns one day jointly with Jesus Christ. You realize what, what I'm saying tonight? Jesus Christ can create. He can create worlds just by his word. And we are an heir and a joint heir with him. Better promises. We're going to occupy a position higher than the angels one day. The angels will even be subject to us. Man, hallelujah. Getting feeling sorry for yourself? You don't even know who you are. You've forgotten who you are. Royalty. Children of God. Heirs of God. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. A king and a priest that's going to rule and reign with Christ forever. We really got something, haven't we? And the best part of it all, it's a gift of God. A gift of God. Better promises through Jesus. God loved us a lot, didn't he? You know, we've got something to tell tonight. Why would we, you know, man, we should never be ashamed because we have a message to tell and it's available to whosoever will. Let him take the water of life freely. Jesus says it's available to whosoever will. If you want it, Yours for the taking. You tell me why under heaven people can't see that. Why is it that anybody won't be saved? What a deal. Well, I'll tell you why. You know why. There's a real devil that's loose. He got people so mixed up and so blinded they can't see reality. They just need to hear the truth, the people that know it, and pray that God the Holy Spirit open their eyes. Okay, let's close right there. Bow our heads, please.